the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And I am going to just move this right along from the get-go, folks, because it is a fun-filled episode. Four interviews today because two wasn't enough. Three just didn't fit right. Uh, we've got Alice Cooper. Needs no introduction. Tom Zutat, of course, of, um, well, Alan, our our co-host, Mr. Alan Niven. What would you uh, give uh, Tom as a official title for, for an introduction? Tom was an A&R executive back in the 80s and is connected to a number of very successful bands. Uh, we first met when he took Motley Crue off my hands at Greenworld and took them to Electra, which was the start of our friendship. Um, I pointed him in the direction of a band called City Kid, who became Tesla. Uh, he signed my roommate, Don Dorkin. Um, he came to me with a band that he was having a difficult time with called Guns N' Roses. Um, he was the A&R representative for Enya. Tom has... Uh, contributed a lot of really good music over the years so so let me get this right the uh, the genesis of your friendship is that he got motley crew off your hands were that were, were they that much trouble uh we should let tom speak for himself but uh, interestingly he once uh, not so long ago said to me of all the bands i've dealt with and there are a lot he said that Motley were the one that were truly devoid of ethic and morality, um, which makes The Dirt all interesting. And Tom is featured in the movie The Dirt. So let's get to Tom and let him speak for himself. Well, yeah, we'll get to that in a second. We have Alice Cooper first, but um, we also have Tracy Guns from L.A. Guns, new album, The Devil You Know. And we will finish this with Brian Ray, who has been Paul McCartney's guitarist for as long as anyone can remember. And, of course, he is on here promoting his new song or new EP, The Tears of a Clown, that features Smokey Robinson. And, of course, we have Alice Cooper, who's a big Beatles fan. So, of course, it makes sense. Um before we get to Tom and the dirt, let's we'll quickly check in with Alice Cooper. They're heading out on tour with Hailstorm, and uh, there's going to be a new Hollywood Vampires with Johnny Depp and uh, Joe Perry of Aerosmith. Mr. Niven, uh, we are actually talking today on the anniversary of Love It to Death. It was released on this day many, many, many years ago. Um Big fan of the Coop, uh, elder statesman, which is, by the way, why I'm putting him first on the episode out of respect, because he is sort of, for, to me, the elder statesman of, of today's episode. What is your take on Le Cooper? And I know we've discussed it in, in previous things, but for this episode. Love It to Death and Killer, I think, are the very best records that Alice ever made. And Love It to Death definitely had an impact on my psyche both sonically and visually and was very definitely part of uh, the thinking process where i decided you know what instead of being an accountant i'd i'd rather get into music yeah you know and uh well you know since since our our episode is jam-packed instead of uh, going down a whole reminiscing of cooper and all that let's let's just get over to the man himself uh without further ado 
Here is, uh, well, welcome to everybody's nightmare, the one, the only, my favorite, Alice Cooper. We are speaking with singer Alice Cooper. Uh, of course, the band has just announced a tour with Hailstorm. Alice, uh, as always, a, a great, great pleasure to talk to you. Um, let me talk to you about this tour with Hailstorm and supporting young bands. You know, as far back uh, or in whatever, 2015 or so, you had talked about this band Jet as being one of these last great rock and roll bands. You've always said nice things about new and upcoming bands. Um, talk to me about going out with Hailstorm and why it's important for somebody in your position to give fans newer bands and show that rock is still moving forward. Yeah, there's a, you know, I think that there's a, a, a new dawning in, in rock bands. Now, I think there's a, an emergence of bands that have the right idea, you know. I mean, Lizzie's band gets up there and, and, and rocks it, you know. I always point young bands towards the Foo Fighters. Go see the Foo Fighters. Go see Green Day. Go see, yeah, the Struts. You know, uh, bands that, that really bring it every night. And, of course, the Alice Cooper Show. I mean, that's what we do every night. Guns N' Roses are doing it now, again. Um, it, it's just that don't ever lose the energy. And remember what your music is. It's rock and roll. I think we have moved back into that period now. I was at the Grammys this year. There was maybe one rock band there. That was it, you know. And so I think rock now has become outlaw again, which I think is good. You know, I think that maybe we, we were too mainstream for a while. So now it's great to kind of be on the outside looking in again and that gives us that 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 underdog edge it really does and 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 by the way i've seen hailstorm before and they're they're in fact going to be uh, here in montreal with uh, bisto blanco in may they they just are absolutely phenomenal so good on you for taking them out um let me quickly that's, also that's yeah. so funny because i've got calico's right here right now the lead singer for bisto blanco <laughs> well, there you go. Right. It's, it, it's a it's a great package. And But OK, just real quick. Also, um, you've also announced Hollywood Vampire Tours or tour dates. Yeah. And, and, and Glenn is actually my, my interview right after you. Um, talk to me about sort of splitting your time between two. And I'm going to call it brands because it, that's what it is. Um, yeah. Do you do, do you sort of do this back and forth all year long or is that sort of Hollywood Vampires may run? That's it for this year, and then right back to Alice. You know, it's uh, last year's tour started, you know, with the Alice Cooper show, big show, going out. We did 193 shows around the world. And the vampires, I, that we would quit, you know, after about 70 shows, 75 shows, everybody took a month break. Okay, on that month break, I met the vampires in Moscow, and we did a full month through Europe. And then when that tour was over, I went right back out on tour with my band, you know, with the regular Alice Cooper show. Uh, this year, there are three albums coming out. There's one out already now, Paranormal in Paris, uh, which is Live Alice in Paris. And then there's a studio album I'm working on right now with Bob Ezrin. The new Vampire studio album is coming out this year. And a live Vampire album is coming out this year. So... <laughs> There's, I've got three albums coming out this year, and and again two tours, so it's not like I'm slowing down at all. 
No, you, you really aren't. In fact, uh, let me quickly take you up on that Alice Cooper with Bob Ezrin thing. Uh, great combination. It has been a, a very fruitful relationship over the years. And the last time we spoke, it was about the Paris album. And you told me about how it was incredible to have the band and Nita and Glenn and Tommy and all the guys on it. Um, the studio album, do, do you bring them into it? Or is it really another one of these Alice, Bob collaborations and you bring in the right guys for the right songs not that Nita and stuff aren't, aren't the right people but you know what I mean is it a yeah. band yeah. is it a band album or yeah. is it another sort of uh, you know Bob Ezrin special for lack of a better word it, it won't it won't necessarily be a band album at all um, my, my touring band understands that they understand that if they're the right player for that song that they'll be on the album but the reason I think that the albums are successful is because I let Bob do that. Bob will come in and say, I'll say, who's going to play lead on uh, Fallen in Love and Can't Get Up? And we looked at each other and went, Billy Gibbons. He's the only one that could play on this. He's the only one that would make this work. And we sent it to him and he plays on it. And it works. You know. So at this point, Bob and I don't have a necessarily a band in mind as far as who's going to. We're just writing the songs now. When we write the songs, then we'll start going, hey, you know, Glenn would be great on this song. Um, you know, Ryan might be great on that song. Let's try that. But in the end, the band, the, you know, the touring band understands that if they're the right player for that song, they'll, they'll be on it. You know, with the vampires, it's just the vampires. I, I want all the vampire stuff to be live in the studio. You know, I like to get the, the band all there in one place. The new vampire album is all originals. Uh, the first album was Alice Co was uh, was the Vampires saluting all of our dead drunk friends. You know, this album is all original stuff, and it's really interesting hard rock. I mean, it really goes in a lot of weird places, but it, it's very cool. With it being original stuff, is it songs that you write, or does Johnny Depp come in with a song? Does does Joe Perry come in with a song? What's sort of the writing process now that it's not covers and it's actual original it's, stuff? Yeah. It's it, whoever has the best songs is, are the ones that get on the record. We all come in with different songs and, uh, you know, we always, we all agree. There's no ego in the whole thing. We sit there and go, okay, that song is great. But that song is, is it, we know we'd have to do that song because it's way too good. You know, so we that's it's really on the quality of the song, not who wrote it. And it ends up being very, you know, it ends up always being one of those things where everybody pretty much has, you know, an equal amount of songs on there. It, it, it's kind of interesting for me. And I can say this right now because I don't think Johnny minds. When I was on tour, Johnny was writing songs. Now, if you remember about all last year, all you ever heard was Johnny Depp. Uh, broke and Johnny Depp in trouble for this and Johnny Depp that and this and all of that stuff was bull. I mean, I was on tour with Johnny and and, and I'm looking at a paper and it says, Johnny, it says here you weigh 110 pounds and that you're depressed and that you're broke and that you're drinking and I'm looking at the healthiest Johnny Depp I've ever seen in my life the happiest Johnny Depp I've ever seen in my life. And I know he's not drinking and I know that he's having the time of his life on the road. So every single thing that I read was absolutely false. 
you know, he's happiest. He's happiest when he's on the road playing guitar with the vampires. What we need to hear at some point is Johnny Depp does interview with Mitch LaFon. That would be spectacular. Uh, (laughs) The funny funny thing is, is now he started writing songs, right? So what's going to happen in those songs? He's going to vent. And so I'm, I'm listening to these songs that he wrote and I'm going, aha, I'm going to be singing this song. And it's Johnny venting about all the crap that people are, you know, saying about him. So it's really kind of, I'm his mouthpiece on this one, you know, and uh, I'm singing his anger on a lot of these songs. And I think it's great. I think it's really, really cool that I, I get to be the, I get to be his mouthpiece on some of these. I don't even think that he knows how angry he really was. Cause some of these songs are pretty angry. Oh yeah, they were. Um, I'm going to move around just real quick. Cause I know our time is limited. Uh, we mentioned Ryan Roxy and, and of course you've got Calico right next to you. Uh, at the turn of the century, or back at, in 2000, you, you, you went out on two albums, Brutal Planet, Dragon Town, very much sort of reinventing what Alice was, more heavy metal, more sort of industrial in a sense. Uh, when we speak of a new album now, do we keep reinventing ourselves and pushing the boundaries, or do you sort of look back over the years, over the 40 and 50 years, and say, no, this is what an Alice Cooper album should sound like, and this is the sound that we're going to go with. You know, the, the new album, is it a reinvention? Is it pushing boundaries? Or is it like, yeah, no, we this is Alice. Now we know this is Alice. I, I You know, I, I know that one thing about an Alice Cooper album, it's always going to be hard rock. You know, so it, it, if it has a different flavor in it, like like those albums were a little more metal, and they were a little bit more uh, storyline, and they were very uh, dark in some places, you know, uh, which was great. I, that's how, the way I was. That's the way I wanted those albums to sound. When I got to albums more like um, the Eyes of Alice Cooper or um, or Dirty Diamonds, in that case, then I wanted it to be much more band rock. That was the one time where the band, you know, played everything uh, live, and it was it was the touring band. Um, so it just depends on really what I want it to be. You know, um, this album coming up, it's going to have an entirely different flavor than, say, you know, Paranormal, because Paranormal was was really a fun Alice Cooper, uh, Bob Ezrin. You know, I even worked with the, the original guys. Uh, as, as long as it rocks, as long as the songs are really well written, I think that's all I really care about. You know, I, I can tell what songs are going to make it on stage and which songs are going to be album cuts. But uh, you, still, you put every effort into every song. You know, I mean, that's really the deal. Yeah, you really do. Um, coming from that uh, from that era back in 2003, there was also this Bare Bones tour. So. I'll ask you the question this way. How important is, you know, the live presentation with the guillotines and the dancers and, and all that? And how different was it for you as a performer back then to do a bare bones show where it was just really you and a band? Was that something that was it unique? Was, yeah. Yeah, it was. It was like I wanted to do at least a one-off. I needed to give the audience a break, I think, you know, from the from all the theatrics. And I said, 
why not just go out and play a hard rock set? And, and even at that, just our hard rock set without a lot of props was still more theatrical than any other show out there. <laughs> I mean, even when we weren't trying to be theatrical, it was theatrical because just Alice inherently is theatrical. Uh, now, this show is going to be over the top. It's going to be over the top theatrical. So, you know what I mean? It's uh, We've gone totally out of our minds on this one. Uh, this new show will be really, really different. Well, so let me ask you about that, because there is a physicality to the show, to, to, you know, to having you drop through when the guillotine comes down. You know, as we get older, is that something that you want to, you know, lessen a bit or, or does it take a toll on you physically? You know, that's that has... the funny thing. Yeah. Not a bit. In fact, if anything, the more theatrical it is, the more action it is, I think the better shape we get in. You know, um, I want it to be a lot of stuff going on. I am the only one after a show that's not breathing hard. I'm 71. And I get done with a two-hour show, and people are going, oh, you must be exhausted. And I'm going, well, I could do another one right now if you wanted me to. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the only one not exhausted. So I've just been in really good shape. You know, I never smoked cigarettes. I quit drinking. I quit doing everything 37 years ago. I'm not stressed out. And I, I kept my body, you know. So... You know, guys like Steven Tyler and myself and Iggy, you know, you do have to be in good shape to get out and do this. Mick Jagger is the king of all of us. Being 75, 76 years old, he does a half an hour on the treadmill and then does a three-hour show without stopping. So that's the guy that is sort of the prototype. Yeah, Mick is the one. And I do know we're running out of time, so I'll finish with this. Um I was just speaking with Mark Farner, of course, of Grand Funk Railroad fame, and we were we were just talking yeah. about Detroit and that scene, and and you guys coming up, Amboy Dukes, MC5, Iggy, like you just mentioned, the Frost, of course, with with Dick Wagner, and, yeah. and he he put forth this sort of anthropological point of view that it was the car industry that set up in Detroit that made every family move there to get jobs, and and this melting pot created this scene because everybody. So is is first of all is that is that does that seem totally accurate? Agree. Okay, so how do you totally see that agree. scene? Yeah. So rock and well, roll was created by the cars. Yeah. Well, a, a bunch of these all these kids, parents worked in the factories. It was a very mid blue collar, uh, you know, audience. These kids grew up with hard rock. They wanted their music to sound like the factory, and they didn't have to go dress up to go to the rock show. They were already in their black leather jackets. They were already in their dirty Levi's and their boots and the long black hair. They they didn't have to pose to go to a show. That was really the way they were. So Detroit is the heart of hard rock. And it's so funny because I'm actually writing a few songs with Mark Farner on the next album. So uh, there's a real there's a real Detroit flavor to the whole next album. That's actually great to hear. And, and in fact, when I spoke to him, he didn't mention that you were writing that, but I did mention your name. So that's that's interesting. And, and and of course, that'll be a great collaboration because obviously you write great songs. But if you look at what he wrote over the years, uh, yeah, you, you know, that, uh, you know, here's a funny I'll tell you. I'll tell you one great story, uh, especially about that. That just is the way that rock and roll works. 
Uh, I'm in New York City, and every night I go to Max's Kansas City, right? That's the place where all the yep. you sit there, and there's George Harrison, there's Frank Zappa, there's uh, there's all the guys. That was the, that was sort of the um, the clubhouse. So I come in one night, and on the way in, uh, I don't know who I'm going to sit with, but there's Todd Rundgren. I sat down with Todd, you know, and I said, Todd, on the way here, I was listening to the radio. I said, and I heard this great song that somebody should cover. I said, it's called Locomotion by uh, Little Eva. He's producing Grand Funk at that point. What do you think their number one record was? Locomotion. Yep. (laughs) Wasn't that great? (laughs) So I never got over to, to Todd to go, hey, you could say thanks. I gave you the idea. I gave you the idea. Locomotion. Come on. Give me some credit on that. <laughs> yeah, that, oh, the, the good old days. Uh, just, uh, I, I I don't have it in front of me, but have you ever had Todd produce one of your albums? No, I worked with Todd on a movie. I worked with Todd on uh, Roadies. And yes, Todd that's and I, it. Okay. We're good friends. We're actually really good friends. We have a lot in common. We're both big, very heavy Laura Nero fans, both of us. And uh, being songwriters, when you're a songwriter, Laura Nero ends up being the best female songwriter of all time. And, uh, and he agreed with that, and I agreed with that. So we had, we had something in common right there. Oh, and we were both in a band called The Naz. Right, except His Dick. band was called The Naz, <laughs> and our band in Arizona was called The Naz. Right. We had to change our name because The Naz already had a record out. Yeah. Well, in fact... Um... So I'll finish on that. We uh, the NAS and then you became the Spiders, I, I guess, right? What? Boy. Well, we were the Spiders, became the NAS. Then from the NAS, we became Alice Cooper. Yeah. Yeah, and then pretty for you and easy for uh, easy action. Um, you did of course do those tour the, those shows with with Dennis and, and and the other guys. Is that something that we will see again? Will Will they guest on this new album? Will have Will you work with the boys, for the for lack of a better word, again, or have we sort of been there, done that? And anytime, anytime, anytime. anytime. I, the great thing about that was that when we broke up in '74, we didn't break up with any bad blood. There was nobody was angry with anybody. We, you know, we all went to high school together. We all went to college together we starved together we made we we became superstars together and when the band just sort of fizzled out you know just we just lost i think we just lost our way and that's when everybody broke up everybody did their own albums and we just kind of separated but we didn't separate with any bad blood nobody was angry no there was no lawsuits nothing like that and um so any time that I can work with Neil or Mike or Dennis, I call Dennis all the time. I call Neil all the time and say, hey, listen, uh, you want to play drums on this? Or Dennis, I got this great idea for this uh, song. Or Dennis will call me up and say, I've got a, I, I think i got something good for your next album. So, yeah, we work together. We're still very good friends together. And, uh, yeah, any time that there, something like that would come up, we would definitely do it. Absolutely. And of course, uh, that that disbanding gave us in March of 75, Welcome to My Nightmare, which to this day is still my favorite Alice Cooper album. Love It to Death is is second, but Welcome to My Nightmare is brilliant from start to finish. And the work you did on that, uh, just yeah, terrific. That was something. In fact, when people ask me the definitive Alice Cooper album, I usually tell them Love It to Death. Yeah, yeah. 
And then, and yeah, that, that love it to death is perfect. Uh, I know we're out of time, Alice. Always, always a pleasure. Hopefully we will see you in uh, Montreal and in Canada at some point. If not, I will come down and see you on the road yeah, somewhere in the States. Okay, great. It'll be you. It'll be a brand new show, so uh, be ready for that. Absolutely. As we say up here, merci beaucoup. Thank you. Merci. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. And a very big thank you to Alice Cooper. Uh, I have to say, Alan, as, as somebody who grew up listening to all of these, to be able to say that I have now interviewed Alice Cooper uh, twice in the last couple of months, you know, adding to like, you know, uh, what is it, seven or eight times in, in my life. But it, it, it really is something unique and special. Uh, yes, but- it is. And, and he's, a, he, he's a special personality. He really is. I might be unique in the world. In a, one day he invited me to go and play golf, and I might be the only person who ever said, no, thank you. Um, is it because, because golf is too bourgeois for you? Is, is that it? I, you're, you're hitting right close to it. I consider golf to be an occupation of the enemy. It's the contemporary smoke-filled room where um, special deals and little conspiracies are hatched. And I, I thought uh, it disappointed me when rock and rollers started playing golf because I think that's the amusement of the enemy. Um, and the other thing was is I never played golf in my life, and I, I was terrified of the idea of going out there and just being a complete and utter embarrassment in front of Alice. Real rock stars play hockey. That's, that's, that's Absolutely. How. And um, I don't know if we'd call uh, Tom Zoot out a rock star, but let's, let's get into Tom. Uh, he's very yeah. articulate. He tells a great story. And I think people are going to enjoy this. Yeah, they really are. And and we have Tom on because, of course, Netflix is going to be premiering The Dirt uh, later this month. And I thought, what better way to 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 preview The Dirt than somebody who was there and is actually part of the movie or, or, or his character, I guess, is part of the movie. And yep. uh, yeah, you know what? Uh, we don't need to introduce Tom because we, we spoke at length with Tom. So let's let let Tom introduce Tom. Here is, without further ado, A&R uh, superstar Tom Zutat. We are speaking with Tom Zutat, the uh, famous, famous A&R guy. And, and joining us also is co-host Alan Niven in our rare threesome kind of interview. Uh, bonjour, monsieur. Good day, Tom. How are you? I'm good. I think something like the dirt requires a threesome. It does. I think it does. <laughs> well, this is this is uh, actually only the second time that we've done this, Tom. Um, we did this with uh, Jim Valens. Um, it was uh, it was a pleasure to be able to talk to a songwriter who was influential. And uh, for those who don't know. Um, I've had the pleasure of having a friendship with Tom since 1981. Wow, it goes back. Yeah, I can, that, that would be 1981, if not even uh, the end of 1980, but 81 for sure. It, it goes back a long way. So I'm trying to think. I, I might have been in elementary school at the time. Um, <laughs> but uh, Tom. Oh, God, you're making us feel old, Mitch. You're making us feel old. <laughs> Well, you know, 
we, we, we've all gotten there. But, but you know, you, you've, of course, worked with many bands over the years, w- whether it's uh, Guns N' Roses or Tesla or, or, or Def Leppard, et cetera, et cetera. But we really are going to focus on, on Motley Crue and uh, The Dirt for this one. First of all, when did the band or when did Netflix or, you know, when did you get wind of this movie getting made and you said, okay, we want you involved? Um, you know, I, I met with them about 10 years ago um, when they first had a script. Um, actually, even before that, uh, Jordan Berliant, actually, when he was working for Alan Povac, sent me the first script even before that. I mean, I mean, I don't know if it's 12, 13, 14 or 15 years ago, but uh, it was not long after the book came out. Um, and then um, eventually they got uh, Rick and Julie Yorn and Eric Olson on board. And, you know, they reached out to me to, uh, you know, have a meeting maybe five or six years ago. And at the time, it, it appeared that the, the movie was going to get greenlit and that they had worked out a deal. Um, you know, Paramount did not want to do the real story. They wanted to sugarcoat it. And of course, the, you know, the band and, and, and Kovac wouldn't agree to sugarcoat it. And so, you know, Rick and Julie Yorn and Eric Olson and Eric Olson, really, he's the guy that, that carried the torch for authenticity. Um, you know, they, they had me come out to LA and I sat with them of all things at a booth at the rainbow. And, you know, we talked a lot about the movie and what their intention was. And then, um, you know, it went dark for a while. They could not get the money. And then, um, all of a sudden I get a phone call, uh, you know, that they got the money from Netflix and the film's going to, you know, get a green light. And so, uh, we were back in business. Yeah, and and by the way, Al Alan Kovac and uh, Nikki have been doing the uh, the rounds these days. They they come as a team when you do interviews these days. What was your relationship with Kovac? What was he sort of the the savior in Motley Crue's career, or or is he one of these guys that you that you couldn't get along with, or sort of how does Alan fit into all of this? Um, you know, I think. First off, you know, Alan Kovac, uh, you know, became became manager of the band after I was, you know, pretty much no longer involved other than just as a friend to Nikki. So, so, um, you know, and to Mick and to Tommy, Vince, I never spoke to a whole lot, but I did talk to Mick and Tommy and Nikki um, even after we stopped working together. So Alan Kovac, you know, came, you know, later in their career, but, you know, he came at a point where things were pretty chaotic. Um, you know, Doug Saylor had actually been, you know, fired over pretty much him, you know, fighting Nikki on the John Karabi thing. And um, of course, we all know how that turned out due to no fault of John Karabi, who's actually a great guy. Uh, I still run into a lot of people who love the John Karabi uh, album and the songs that were on it. And, you know, thought it represented a, a monumental move forward for the band. It's just, you know, with some bands, they get away with replacing a lead singer. It's, it's you know, that's dead maybe, like ACDC. You know, Mutt Lang made, you know, a big top 10 hit single with You Shook Me All Night Long and nobody missed Bon Scott. And we, we, we thought that was unforgivable that anyone could replace Bon Scott. But as it worked out with uh, Motley Crue, you know, people weren't willing to accept a Motley Crue without Vince Neil. 
But Alan Kovac came later. So back to your direct question. Um, shortly after Alan became the manager, I, you know, I met him in New York and he was very nice to me. And, you know, he asked me sort of what I knew of sort of the, the, you know, the dynamics of the band. And he talked to me about this idea of how he was going to, you know, sort of monetize and, and put the band in a better business structure. And, and, from what I can tell, it seemed to have worked. Yeah, it really did seem to work. Just to, just real quick, since you mentioned John Karabi, um, who, who I'm friends with, by the way, great guy. Do you think, because a lot of fans said, well, that 1994 album, had they just called it The Crew or had they just called it something else, it would have made a, a whole world of difference. Would you have advised them, had you still been working with them, to to have changed it? to another band name and just say, all right, you don't have Vince, just call it something else and move on? Or do you think they did exactly what they needed to do? It was Crew as a new singer and it's Motley Crew and the rest, you know, what would you have done? Um, I probably would have erred on the side of saying, why don't you call it the Crew instead of Motley Crew and, and give some breathing space for the fans to accept something slightly different. I think you know, it's like if you genetically modify an orange and it's not the orange that people have been eating for 20 years, they may not accept it. But if you give it a new name, even if it hints at the old name, I think people are more open. I mean, this could not be any more evident than in Chinese democracy. If it had been called a W. Axel Rose solo record, I think it would have been accepted as a work of genius. But because it was a different and completely new sounding version of Guns N' Roses, you know, people, whether they were in radio or, or fans, you know, they weren't willing to really accept it. Yeah. And uh, I think sometimes, you know, when you genetically modify, you know, a fruit or a vegetable, you know, you, you got to come up with a new name, you know, because, you know, people have certain expectations on original names and original sounds. Yeah, I agree, and 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 I do think, by the way, that I mean, think China... about, you know, think about think about Bowie, right? Yeah, you know, spiders from Mars. When when he morphed into something else, it wasn't called the spiders from Mars anymore. Well, exactly. And when you had uh, free turning into bad company, there was an integrity in deciding that they were going to name themselves after the song. Um, yeah, it's interesting I, I, that you that you mentioned that because Bad Company was not all that much different <laughs> than Free really. It was a more evolved and maybe more commercial version of Free. It was more along the wishing well lines of Free as opposed to the Paul Kossif more blues-based Free, but you know, again, I mean they changed the name and you know, of course the devil's advocate people are going to say but you know uh, what about, uh, you know, Genesis and Phil Collins? Nobody had a problem with that. I mean, it, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But I don't know that Genesis really changed their sound a whole lot. Well, I, I would argue that Genesis became very much of a pop band, especially going in the 80s with Invisible Touch and, and uh, you know, the Genesis album that had Mama and stuff like that. They They... they Got that away from slow, that frog sound. Sort of a, but, yeah, but Mitch, don't you think that was sort of a slower evolution than a a, a knock on the head with something completely different? Agreed. It, it yeah, was a and, slow bubble or a slow burn, and, I should and, say. And here's the question I'd ask Mitch, who's uh, the, the expert on remembering all things musical. Um, 
When exactly did Peter Gabriel release his first solo record? Didn't that, did that not come out before there was a non-Peter Gabriel Genesis record? Boy, I believe, you know, it's funny because I just watched the Genesis documentary yesterday. Uh, I think it was in the late 70s, was it not? Well, whenever it was, the point I was trying to get to is that if I remember correctly, which is highly doubtful, um, Peter's solo record came out before we were looking at uh, dealing with a Genesis with uh, uh, the drama singing. So, I mean, you know, I think that sometimes mitigates things a little bit, too. Yeah, it was, uh, and I just checked it up, it was 1977, and by the way, thank you for mentioning it, because it had producer Bob Ezrin on it, who of course is known for working with Kiss. You see, we got a Kiss mention in there. Um, Let me get back to the beginning of Motley Crue, uh, and I'll put it to both of you, Alan and Tom. When was the first time that you heard about this band, and when was sort of the first time you, you were in contact with them? Was it, what is it, a show at the Whiskey? Was it... Was it something further back? When did sort of the the name Motley Crue come to people's ears and say, okay, we need to go check out this band? And I'll start with you, Tom. When, when was that your first sort of connection to there's something happening here and I've got to go check this, this out? Well, I was driving down Sunset Strip uh, in my Jeep and um, I, I just saw like, you know, kids wrapped around the block at the Whiskey. And it said Motley Crue sold out. So I thought, well, that's an interesting name. Um, I think I should probably go see the show if I can. And so I, I pulled my Jeep over, parked it, and I went to the, uh, you know, the, the, the ticket box. And I said, look, you know, I work for Electra Records. I need to get into the show, you know. And she wasn't very nice to me, you know, the, the, the woman – who was behind, you know, the ticket box. And, and I said, no, you don't understand. I really have to see this show. And I was really persistent. So she finally said, well, you'll have to talk to Mario, the owner. And I said, okay. And so Mario came out and he said, all right, kid, what's your story? I said, I really need to get into this show. And he said, why? And I said, oh, I work for Electra Records and, you know, we want to see the band and, and he goes, well, let me see your business card. And, you know, I gave my business card and it said sales and marketing on it. And, you know, Mario, even in 1981, was fairly savvy. You know, he was like, well, you're not an A&R kid. You know, uh, I, I mean, the show sold out. The fire marshals are here. Um, I, I can't really let you in. And I said, you don't understand. I said, I know it says, you know, sales and marketing, but, you know, I'm going to find the biggest bands in the world and, and get their music out. And I said, I got to see this band. And he's like, kid, where are you from? And I go, Chicago. And he's like, Oh, he goes, uh, that's where I'm from. He goes, uh, he's like, I, I opened the first whiskey in Chicago. And, and then, um, you know, my partner and I came out here and opened up on the strip and, you know, we started talking and he said, what'd you do in Chicago? And, you know, uh, I mentioned a certain name that he also knew. And he said, you know what, kid, come on in. And, you know, the rest, of course, is history. I mean, in the movie, they have Pete Davidson portraying me as uh, a kid eating a hot dog that he spills on his shirt, kind of like a, a, a bumblefoot. But, um, 
you know, that's not really how it happened. And of course, you know, I wanted to keep it authentic, but you know, when they tell a story, they don't always, uh, the story doesn't always get told with a hundred percent truth. So I, I was kind of sad that they missed that little moment with Mario because he's such a legend, but you know, you only have so many minutes in, in a movie, at least when they thought it was a movie before it was going to be streamed on Netflix, where, I mean, you know, it could stream for three hours. It doesn't have to have a time limit, a time limit, but I think it's already like around two hours or something. So it's pretty long, but, uh, but that, that they didn't portray accurately, but that's well, how I found that, the band. And, and, and that's how Mario let me in. And of course, Mario was a good friend to me uh, until he passed. Yeah, let me pick up on something there, if I may, guys. Okay. Um, it's interesting to see that uh, Frank and uh, and Nicky rather to and Alan Kovac are out uh, um, shilling for the movie and and talking about its truth and honesty, um, and suddenly we have Tom being represented as uh, you know a, to use Tom's word a bumblefoot. I love that um, with a hot dog in his hand. Um, you know, because the very first time that Tom actually met the band, they were playing at the Glendale Civic. And I took him along, um, you know, and obviously in the timeline, we're, you know, we're, jump, we're jumping around a bit here. Um, but I took him along and introduced him as my then wife's American cousin. My wife then was Swedish. And we were being very, very careful um, because the first time that Motley Crue came to my notice was when uh, a rather interesting character called Alan Kaufman came to the business I worked at that was called Greenworld. And he brought with him a record that had been uh, recorded with Michael Wagner. And uh, he was looking for distribution. And one of the owners of Greenworld gave me the... Uh, the cassette and said, you know, will you go and evaluate this and tell me what you think of it? And I took it home. And at that point I'd, I'd not long moved from Sweden to California and my stereo system at home was merely a, a JVC boom box with a pair of Sennheiser headphones. And I listened to this record and, um, it wasn't that well performed and it wasn't that well recorded, but it had a vibe to it. And there were a couple of songs on it that I thought were almost as good as cheap trick. <laughs> and the one that did it for me was piece of your action. So I went back into work the next day and I said, we should sign this band. So instead of doing a distribution deal, we actually signed them to a label that did not exist at the time. And I used a, uh, an old Bemis brain contract to, formulate the uh, um, relationship between Greenworld and, and Motley Crue. And um, off, off we went to uh, see where we could go with this. And uh, there was a NAM convention in Century City. And we had a, um, a booth there, and uh, I covered it in Motley Crue posters, and this young lad came up to me and said, um, do you have anything to do with the band? And I kind of looked at the post and said, well, yes. 
And he said, I'm really interested in him. And I said, well, who are you? And he said, I'm Tom Zoot out from a lecture. And at which point I said, well, maybe you should come and have dinner at my house this weekend and we'll talk. And that was the beginning of our Motley Crue adventure, but more importantly, the beginning of a long friendship. Just just real quick, was that sort of Shell record company, was that the Leather Records or was that something different? Oh, Motley had come up with the name Leather Records themselves. Okay. So at that point, it was like it's, the records are already printed. I'm already placing them in uh, major retailers um, across America. Um, you know, in the days when we used to have great retail chains across America, you know, like Record Bar and Camelot and Licorice Pizza and Tower, obviously, and was getting them into uh, um, those businesses. Um, so it was a case of let's move, let's change as little as we have to um, because we want to get on this and get going. Um, right. And, you know, none, none of us were wealthy. The band weren't wealthy. Greenworld weren't wealthy. Um, we didn't have the means to mess around a lot. It was would, a, a judgment that we can get somewhere here um, and let's go with it. I, I used to go into Greenworld every Saturday on my own and be the only person in there, and I'd be enveloping records and going through a dictionary of radio stations, just sending them anywhere that I thought there might be the remotest chance they might even open the envelope and look at it. Um, it was very early days, and uh, yeah. you know, from speaking for myself, I was still pretty on a steep learning curve of what was what in America. So, you know, there were probably some stations that received copies of Motley Crue's Too Fast for Love and just looked at it and went, what the hell is this? Right, some some uh, Christian broadcasting <laughs> networks that got them. But Tom, let me... Yeah, let me... I, mean, I think I was going to say, you know, in, in addition to what Alan mentioned, you know, I, you know, for me, I went to that uh, NARM convention in Century City and, you know, having seen the band maybe the week before that at the Whiskey... You know, and all of a sudden I met this NARM convention where Green World had a booth and I see all these Motley Crue posters, you know, like I'd seen them across the street at Licorice Pizza, which had a, a store right across the street from the whiskey the night of the concert. So I figured who's ever in that booth, you know, must know the band. Because at that point, you know, I, I didn't know how to get in touch with a band or how to find them or, you know, I really didn't know anything except how to sell records and market them. So you know, but I always knew I wanted to find the bands and make records. So anyway, seeing that booth and meeting Alan and then, um, you know, you know, hanging out with him, I think on the, the Saturday after the NARM or whatever the first non-working day was uh, after the NARM um, and finding out his Alan's history at Virgin and you know, I mean, my fascination with Virgin and Gong and Steve Hillage and you know, so many other eclectic, obscure bands that I had collected their records of when I was a teenager. And, you know, Alan was actually involved in, you know, selling and marketing those records himself when he worked in the early days of Virgin. So we immediately connected on that level. But yet, you know, we were both excited about Motley Crue, but yet we both knew all these really obscure records that Richard Branson released with you know, Mike Oldfield probably being one of the biggest because of tubular bells. 
and yeah. the exorcist so so talk to me then about uh, talk to me a little bit about that scene back in the time uh, back in the day because you know we're getting out of the the punk era and the knack and and, and the jam and all these sort of bands and 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 you've got uh, Dawkins and Rat and Quiet Riot was there a sense of community whereas everybody was sort of like had a greater purpose of getting this scene and sunset strip going or was there was it very much Rat versus crew, crew versus Dawkins, Dawkins versus. Was it cutthroat business, or was it sort of this growing sense of community? I mean, you know, you know, you know, Mitch. To tell you the truth, it wasn't really like that at all. It was sort of like West Side Story with six different gangs. And what I mean is, is that <laughs> if there was a camaraderie, it was only that you know, Motley Crew, Dawkins, and Rat, and others, you know, were playing you know, what we now think of as hair metal music, even though then we just saw it as great rock bands, you know, but, you know, so that might be at the whiskey and then down at the Roxy, it was like Spandau Ballet and Human League, right? And, you know, down at Gazari's joint, it was still all the Van Halen-esque 70s bands. And, you know, and then, um, you know, at the Central, which is now called the Viper Room, it was like, you know, the Blasters X, you know, fear, circle jerks. And, and, and one of the most interesting aspects of that time period was, is you had those four or five different kinds of music. And, you know, today everybody listens to all kinds of music, you know, it's like Jack FM, if you know what that is, where, you know, any song could follow another song, irregardless of its genre or subgenre. But you know, again, you know, Sunset was usually shut down from Tower Records all the way to Doheny, and sometimes it spilled past that. But there were probably thousands of kids wearing their war paint, right? Like the rock kids had a certain look, the 70s rock peeps had a different look, the punks had a look, the rockabillies had a look, you know, the new romantics had a look, and Nobody got along with anybody. There were constantly fights between genres and, you know, kids like they were, you know, on one side or the other in West Side Story, except there were four sides or five sides. And, you know, at the same time that I saw Motley, you know, shortly thereafter, I saw X and the Go-Go's in the Go-Go's when they were a punk band, you know, and, um, you know, it was interesting because I would slip between the tribes and see all kinds of music. So I always loved all kinds of music from when I was 10 years old. But for most people, they wore their war paint and there were a lot of fights and scuffles, a lot of, uh, you know, sheriffs, uh, you know, uh, intervening to, to keep the crowd separated. And if there was any camaraderie between the rock bands, you know, it was only in that they were in that particular gang together, although they were very competitive amongst each other, they were just in that gang together. And, you know, today, I mean, you know, people look at Sunset Strip today and, you know, you see the old photos in the rainbow and, you know, you read about the history, but it was a lifestyle choice then to pick the bands that you believed in, to wear their colors and go scuffle on the Sunset Strip to support that your music was better than the other three gangs. And so, it was real in that sense. You know, it wasn't a business. It wasn't contrived. You know, people were just living on Sunset Strip, what they believed. And this whole story was unfolding on the Strip and then spreading out to the rest of the country. And, you know, the Go-Go's turned more pop. They had hits, you know. 
Um, you know, X kept their integrity of what they were for a very long time, but they eventually, you know, got on the radio. Um, you know, so a lot of bands came out of that scene, you know, the blasters got their notoriety. Um, you know, people know who fear and the circle jerks were, although they never got airplane, nobody really heard them. But I think the whole point of it is, is the camaraderie was because the rock kids were in the same gang and, you know, the rock kids that were in the new quote hair metal bands that, you know, that they, you know, they didn't really want to be associated with the dinosaur bands. Right. And every now and then there's a band that kind of slipped in the middle, which would be Van Halen who were very competitive with Motley Crue, but you know, they were down at Gazzari's, they weren't at the whiskey, they were then playing the bigger gigs, you know? So you know, I guess my point is, Mitch, is that it, there really wasn't like a business rivalry. It was just these these gangs, you know, showing their colors and fighting uh, amongst each other. And um, the bands within the, the, the gangs, they were also competitive. But, you know, they'd play shows together. So to that extent, they might fight over who was headlining versus who wasn't. You know, I mean, you know, I think Motley Crue at one point opened for Dokken because Dokken had a bigger base. I tell you one thing I noticed, Mitch, back then, and before it passes passes away, I love that analogy about West Side Story, Tom. That's that's really cool. Um, I'll tell you what I noticed, and uh, I think Tom will remember this too. Um, around, especially around Motley Crue, but around that tribe of bands were the most amazing Orange County blonde girls who wore tatters and that they obviously paid a lot of money for, but came to the gigs looking pre-ravaged. And I was looking at these amazing-looking California girls, and, and I, the thought crossed my mind, if the girls are here, the guys will come. And if the guys come where the girls are, you've got something that's going on and you've got to hit. Yeah, you do. So l let me ask you this, Tom. When you're working with a band like Motley Crue, uh, you know, folks have said, well, Tommy Lee's one of the greatest drummers and and, and uh, Mick Mars is, is, is an underappreciated guitarist, but Vince, you know, his vocals and Nicky, his bass playing could be better. Do you focus more on making them a better band musically and or do you focus on creating a compelling story of look at these badasses that you need to be on this bandwagon? What was sort of your primary focus or function in promoting the band? Was it sort of creating a mystique or saying, boy, you guys got to really get in the studio? And, you know, what you know what I mean? What was sort of your main focus? You, you know, my main focus for Motley Crue or really any band or artist I've worked with is it all starts and ends with the song, you know, to that, you know, and, and to that effect, I think it's true for, for anyone making a record, you know, it, it starts and ends with a good song. And, you know, Alan's analogy to Cheap Trick was interesting because, I mean, no one would argue that that Cheap Trick and however their writing process goes with Rick Nielsen and Robin Zander, you know, they wrote some absolutely incredible songs. And, you know, Nikki Six has written some absolutely incredible songs. And, you know, they were on that first Green World leather record. Um, they were on Shout at the Devil. And really, you know, my focus was always about the song, you know, 
But there's another part to, to the Motley Crue story that I think is really interesting that, you know, maybe a lot of people are not aware of. But, you know, Nikki was a real creative, you know, genius then in that, you know, he had a vision for the band and it was a larger than life comic book character vision. And, you know, after I met him and, you know, in between the time of meeting him um, as, uh, you know, as Alan's, uh, you know, former wife's uh, cousin to actually spending real time with him and, and, and hearing him lay out his vision, you know, a lot of Motley Crue has played out pretty much to the vision that he described to me in 1981. You know, he he described the Vince character. He described the Mick Mars character. He described the Tommy character. And I, and, and I can't say that that what they are is not what he told me they were going to be. You know, he had that vision to project why they were in his band and, and, and what comic book character they would portray. Um, you know, he was a struggling bassist as a musician, but he had great songs and he had great ideas for more than just the songs. So, you know, he knew Tommy Lee was the musical bedrock. He knew that, you know, Mick Mars was the monster of tone. And uh, I used to, you know, Mick Mars stayed with my brother and I at our apartment for a while. And I mean, this is a guy that would, you know, take an amp apart and put it back together. And when he put it back together, it sounded better. A guy obsessed with getting the best tone possible. And I would say that, you know, he was a riff monster. I mean, you know, without his riffs, those songs don't work, you know, and he is an underappreciated guitar player, but you know, Nikki described, you know, Tommy Lee is the 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 rock bed of the band, the 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 happy happy puppy dog as he used to call him, and you know, and Vince was the 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 the, the bombshell blonde, and um, you know, Mick was like the uh, the scary guy that could play guitar really good, and you know, he would always be portrayed as sort of like the darker, scary guy, which. It's ironic because he actually is one of the, the, the guys in the band that holds more light, right? So anyway, sitting with Nikki and he describes how each of them are going to become larger than life comic book characters. And, you know, if, 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 if you look, you know, part of the mystique of a rock band is, is that very fact. And I think that one of the things missing today are these larger than life comic book characters as, as, you know, embedded as part of being a rock star that really are able to live that lifestyle. We could have a debate forever about whether or not in today's politically correct environment, there could be a, a comic book hero larger than life um, rock star. But um, that, that, that I think was a really important part for me when Nikki, you know, laid all that out for me. Um, and, and I believed in, in his vision and he was so, you know, firm on it. And, I also, you know, that's part of what drove me to get, you know, Tom Werman, who'd done those great cheap trick records to, um, you know, produce the first brand new Motley Crue record, which was Shout at the Devil. That was part of what drove me to get Werman to do it, you know, because Werman understood really good songs and how to, you know, put those hooks in them that would, you know, would get you lots of mass exposure. Um I, however, felt that the Motley record had to have a much harder edge. And so I was able to convince Norman to use Jeff Workman for the first time as an engineer. And I would say that, you know, 
Jeff Workman's sounds, you know, and what he got on tape are, you know, part of the reason that that record was good, you know, along with Worman's production and his understanding of the songs. You know, I was just going to say he read my mind because I was actually going to say, how involved were you in the decision of, of getting Tom in? But I will pick up on Tom in a second. Alan, what were you going to what were you going to add? I, I was just going to add that uh, coming off what Tom was saying about uh, Nikki's sense of vision, um, that I thoroughly, thoroughly agree with that. And to me, um, being a little bit of an old dog, uh, he struck me as what I might call a dark vaudevillian in the, and cut from the same cloth as an Alice Cooper or a Blackie Lawless that he saw it in very visual terms as well as sonic terms. Yeah, he, he really did. So uh, l- let me just get back to Tom Worman. Uh, Tom is a personal friend. I've actually stayed at his beautiful bed and breakfast. Um, is this a guy that you imposed on Motley Crue, or did you have a discussion with the band and say, this is why I think he would be good for you? Um, you know what? It, it, it was just... Nikki and I were in synergy about it. And, um, you know, there's a much longer backstory, but basically, you know, because of what happened to me on the road to signing Motley Crue, the entire A&R department at Electra were fired. And I was asked who... I thought would be the perfect person to come in and run the A&R department. And, you know, I hadn't even met Tom Worman in person, but, but I spoke to the chairman of Electra and I said, you know, you should really get someone who knows how to make records, you know, who's done a, a, a wide range of rock records and, you know, he's worked, you know, in, in the, in the, the CBS, you know, Columbia records, system forever. And, um, you know, it was Tom Worman. And then, you know, I don't know, a month later, he actually called me up and said, well, I interviewed a bunch of people, but I I, I agree with you. And he actually hired Worman. And he said, I can't force Worman to take you, but um, I'm hopeful that Worman will, you know, offer you to be like the number two guy in the A&R department and you can leave your marketing and sales job. And that's exactly what happened. And so, you know, the first thing I did was, um, you know, I, 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 I had to lobby Worman for a while, you know, to produce Shout at the Devil. And then I had to lobby him even harder to bring in Jeff Workman to engineer it rather than using Gary Ladinsky, who he'd used on all the other records. You know, the Boys from Illinois, the Nugents, the Molly Hatchets, the Cheap Tricks and, and many others. So, um it just all fell into place. You know, um, I lobbied heavily for it. And, you know, when Nikki turned in the songs and it was like, yep, that's, we got enough there to make a record, you know, Worman was excited to do it, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it was easy, you know, cause Worman and I were getting to know each other. Um, you know, Worman was, you know, he, Tom was balancing, you know, running an A&R department, rebuilding an A&R department, versus, you know, going in the studio again. 
So, uh, and I'll, I'll move on from Warman after this, but uh, you got Shout at the Devil, Theater of Pain, Girls, Girls, Girls. Uh, you can't deny how successful they were and how they set up the band and how it eventually led to Dr. Feelgood and, and this, you know, massive success. But when you talk to Nikki, when you talk to Vince, they all say, eh, it's too soft. We didn't like it. It, it, it was too candy coated. It was too, you, you know, is the criticism of, of, of Warman's work warranted or is that sort of monday morning quarterbacking no it's not warranted right what do you think Tom? um i i stand by the work that worman did and you know i think the success of those records and the fact that everybody around the world heard them you know speaks for itself i mean you know i, I know at a certain point um you know, Nikki and, and Worman had a falling out. And, I, you know, ironically, I think it was over Worman drinking wine in the studio, which sounds really stupid from guys who are shooting heroin and fucked up beyond belief. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, again, it's, it's just one of those strange, uh, you know, those strange things. And, you know, perhaps, like like when a child rebels against a parent and and does stupid shit to hurt their parent, you know, it it really feels a lot like that. Like they grew up together, they made these great records, and then it was time for the child to uh, break away from the parent and do it in a in a very destructive way. And you know, unlike maybe you know a parent and a, and a real child, you know, there's a blood tie and you find a way to uh, you know reconcile, right? Or is it in the end of the Dirt movie, you bring the family back together. But with Worman, you know, the family never really got back together. And, you know, you know, Motley Crue, of course, you know, made that Dr. Feelgood record, which was an amazing record. It was a, it was an evolution for the band, but it was still Motley Crue. And then, you know, shortly after that, the whole thing disintegrated with Karabi when they made another evolution and it didn't sound like Motley Crue to people. Yeah, that that that, and I'll keep saying that Motley Crue '94 record, that Hooligans Holiday is great. I, in fact, I'd love to hear Vince uh, give it a whirl. Um, just quickly, uh, speaking of Vince, 1984, of course, we have this this accident with uh, Razzle of the Hanoi Rocks. Sitting from where you were, what, what was sort of the first time you heard of it, and and what was your 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 immediate reaction to the whole thing? Well, you know. And, and I don't mean to sound crass, but was it like, uh oh, I have to protect an asset or was it like, oh, fuck, now he's done it. And, and please forgive me if that sounds horrible to say it in that in that way. But, but what was sort of that that initial phone call where you go, there's been an accident. What do we do? Uh, I mean, my gut instinct was that, uh, you, you know, I mean, I heard about it pretty much the night that it happened. And then I heard more the next day. But Didn't uh, I told you that people, night, Tommy. Didn't I call you that night? Because um, it happened just around the corner from my apartment. Yeah, I, you know, you probably did. I, I don't remember. I got a bunch of calls, Alan, and I'm sure that you were one of them. But I was pretty much in a state of shock because I was looking at, you know, this is, you know, the bread and butter That's of Electra Records. You know, this is, this is, you know, I mean, this was the relaunch of a new Electra Records that was selling records rather than throwing them away. So... Um, I was pretty much in a state of shock and it didn't really sink into me until a day or two later. And, you know, I pretty much, you know, talked to Doc and Doug a lot and, you know, 
I think we all pretty much thought that uh, it was going to be over. And uh, Doc really was the one who said, we'll get through it and we'll make it work. You know, um, you know, he seemed to have uh, a plan and an idea on how we would get through it and that the band would, uh, you know, carry on and everything would be fine. Just real quick. Uh, you, you mentioned Doc, of course, Doc McGee, very, very instrumental in, in the success or from my perception, of course, of, uh, the band and of course, Bon Jovi and many others kiss these days. Um, what was your relation? Yeah, I always got to get kiss in there. You know that Alan, um, what is your relationship? What was, I should say your relationship with Doc McGee at the time, was he a partner in this or was it always the manager fighting with the label and wanting more? And was, what, was it a, 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 a friendship or was it really a professional relationship with you and Doc? Um, it was more of a friendship because honestly, you know, Doc was more supportive of mine and Nikki's creative ideas than the label were. I mean, you know, I was almost like a manager within the record label because I, I've always advocated for what's best for the artist. And I feel like if you do what's best for the artist, that leads to good productivity, which leads to great records, which leads to the record company selling great records and making money, you know? Um, and, and that real like managers having to be adversarial against the label thing hadn't really, you know, hit the mass consciousness of managers. So, you know, I met doc through Doug Thaler, you know, I, I would go to Doug Thaler and, you know, beg him to put Motley Crue on tours and, you know, open for Nugent, open for this or that, you know, whatever Aerosmith, whatever bands Doug was working with. And then there came a point where basically, you know, I was sort of interim managing Motley Crue because Alan Coughlin was fired. They didn't really have a manager. And, you know, Nikki and I were stumbling our way through it as best we could. And was he fired then, or did he just disappear? What's that? Oh, Alan Coughlin? Yeah, was he fired or did he just disappear? Because he disappeared too, didn't he? Um, well, uh, all I know is this, is that he had, he had run off with the band's, um, you know, advance check from Electra. He he took the money and sort of disappeared and then they fired him. He, but they he, did never, that with, he did that with the Greenwald money too. Yeah, so he couldn't be found anywhere for them to get their piece of the Electra advance. And I didn't know about the green world advance, but, but he, he went off the face of the earth and thus he was fired. Right. Um, so there was this period of time where there was no manager and, and somewhere, you know, you know, after maybe a year of, um, you know, doing pre-production on songs for, you know, shout at the devil, eventually, you know, and I'm trying to get the band dates and stuff and, you know, so they could go out and play on the Green World record that we had reissued. I met Doug and then Doug introduced me to Doc and, you know, he said, hey, I'm I'm leaving my job. And, you know, Doc and I are forming a new management company. I'm going to be the day to day guy for Motley. But, you know, it's Doc's company. And, you know, Doc to this day is still great to me. And, you know, we were like friends. There was nothing adversarial. Um if the label wouldn't pay for something, Doc would pay for it. I mean, you know, what's not to like about a manager that reaches into his own pocket when the label says no. And Electra had a bunch of accounting type people that, you know, had a lot of power. Like they did not want to do shout at the devil as a gatefold jacket. And really a record sucks without the gatefold jacket that opens up with that Barry Levine 
you know, redo of Kiss portrait in the middle of the band looking like larger than life comic book characters. So, you, you know, really we worked together. It was almost like I was as much a part of, you know, Doc and Doug's management team as I was the record label guy. So, you know, from today's perspective, the managers and labels are usually adversarial, you know, number one, because you have to fight to get the label's attention. And number two, because it suits the managers that their artists don't have close relationships with the label, because if they have a close relationship with the label, it could interfere with their relationship with their client they're managing. Right. Um, Alan, did you have any contact with, Doug, uh, not with Doug, with a doc at that time, or were you already sort of moving out into sort of great white Guns N' Roses territory? Um, no, I, I didn't uh, really get to know Doc in any way um, until later. Um, we had uh, MSG opening for Great White on a tour. Um, and of course, you know, in passing, I may have met Doc a couple of times with, with Tommy. Um, and, you know, as, as extraordinary as it sounds, um, what Tommy's saying about being a manager within the uh, record company um, it's more than one time that that trick has been used. And, you know, one of the things I loved about Tom was that he firmly understood about the concept of letting the band take care of the music and then the music would take care of the record company. And in, you know, this is another conversation for another time, but in dealing with Geffen with Guns N' Roses, um, there were times when, Tom and I basically switched roles so as we could get Geffen to do things. Right. Now, um, we are we are reaching uh, 50 minutes, and so I, I, I will end on this for, for today, and hopefully we can do a, a part two and, and explore some of the other bands at some point. But uh, The Dirt, of course, is uh, on Netflix. Looking at the movie and the final cut and the final... Is it a, a, a faithful representation? And of course, there's always, you know, uh, producers, uh, dramatic effect and so on and so forth. But if you see that story, maybe you're not a fan. Do you get a real sense of what went on? Or is this really sort of the Hollywood version of, of the band? Tom? Well, I, I would say that it's, as for the movie, of course, it, it is a story. And it had a time limit time limit in which to tell a story. And, you know, for your average person or average listener, you, you know, there's a certain um, formula that's, you know, that's like sort of embedded into the psyche of the human brain, like the three minute song, right? And every now and then a band gets away with a seven minute song, like, you know, Free Bird or Sweet Child of Mine. And I think Guns N' Roses pulled off a, a second long song like that with um, Paradise City. But, you know, generally you, you know, so within even a, a TV series during a given season or a movie, there's a certain um, Shakespearean, you know, element to how you tell the story and, and it's successful and it works. So a lot of things have to conform to that. So, they look for the bullet points of the story to make the point. And in order to really tell the Motley Crue story, you probably need, you know, 
six hours. And so, you know, we have a six hour story to, to really get everything in that's significant or matters, you know, cut down to an hour and a half to two hours. And so there's going to be a lot missing, but within the stories that they chose, it tells a fairly, um, you know, in, in a fairly accurate way, the history of those events. But if you could tell the story a certain way by omitting certain events, let's say that maybe certain events were omitted, whether intentionally or because they would require too much time to tell, or you wouldn't be able to fit within the Shakespearean notion of the bullet points of a two-hour movie or less. So, you know, my answer to you is, is that for what they tell, it's a pretty accurate rendition of the story. I think for, you know, the non-obsessive, uninformed, you know, casual, you know, movie watcher on Netflix that isn't an obsessed Motley Crue fan that knows every detail, um, they're going to enjoy the story very much. Um, you know, basically, you know, you, you see the band from the very beginning, you see a lot of their human frailties in their darkness. Um, you know, you get a couple of, uh, you know, tear jerking moments and then, you know, it ends on a triumph where, you know, the family comes back together in the end and, you know, Nikki acknowledges that the only family he really had were the guys in this band and, um, you know, it's almost uh, like, uh, you know, King Arthur searching for the Holy Grail and stumbling along the way. And the Holy Grail is actually those four guys together. Yeah, it really was. And uh, just real quick, have you had a chance to hear their version of, of Madonna's, uh, what was it, Like a Virgin, I think they've covered? You know, I haven't heard it yet. So I'm very, you know, very curious to hear it. You know, I mean, you know, they do some great covers, Helter Skelter, Smoking in the Boys Room. So... You know, why not tackle that? <laughs> right, because Helter Skelter smoking in the boys' room like a virgin. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it fits right in there. Have, have you heard Have you heard it, Mitch? I have not as of yet, but I, I'm I'm certainly keen. Listen, I, I'm keen to hear it. I, I think it'll be interesting to to see what they did with it. I, I'm assuming they've, you know, crewified it, if that's if we can use that term. And, and it's not going to be sort of a pop song. It'll probably be a little dirtier and sleazier. And, um, you know, we'll, 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 we'll judge it when we hear it. Alan, uh, Tom, always, always a pleasure. And I certainly hope we can do part two and maybe look in at some of the other bands that you've had a, a chance to, uh, to, to work with. And uh, Monsieur uh, Niven, Merci, as we say up here, uh, Tom. Merci, as we say in, in Abiento. Abiento, and uh, there you go. Thank you, boys. Thank you both. Ah, you're welcome. This is Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon. Mitch Lafon. Very big thank you to Tom Zutat, and of course, you had a chance to hear him talk about all the boys in Motley Crue, including Nikki Six and Alan. You are going to love this during our next interview. Uh, I think the kids these day call it, these days call it throwing shade, but Tracy Guns of L.A. Guns has a new album out called "The Devil You Know," or L.A. Guns, I should say, has a new album out called "The Devil You Know." Uh, great album, by the way. The, this band has has revitalized the brand. They are hungry and and just making the best music possible. Quite frankly, 
but uh, we do get to uh, talking about um, backing tapes and and stuff. And I and I reference uh, a tweet that uh, Nikki Six had made. And well, I'll let the listeners uh, stick around and get the answer. But uh, it is sort of like, uh, well, hmm, maybe Nikki shouldn't be talking. Uh, What's your what's your connection, if, if any, to L.A. Guns? Well, Tracy was long gone of 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 Guns and Roses before you even got involved, right? Yes, absolutely long gone. Um, presiding memory I have of Tracy is he once sold me a Fender Basement rig, uh, head and cabinet, and uh, I wish I still had it today. But I used that uh, Basement rig countless times in the studio because running a guitar through a Fender Bassman rig got you some really terrific tones. And uh, I, I bought the one that I had from Tracy. Now, the question is, did it belong to Tracy, or was he just selling it, if you know what I mean? <laughs> um, I wouldn't ask an indiscreet question like that, especially when I was so happy that somebody would part with a Fender Bassman, because... Uh, you know, like the Vox AC30, um, and I mean the old Vox AC30s, uh, it's a rig that people really want to try and get a hold of if they can. Um, because yeah. in the studio, AC30s and Fender Basements got great guitar tones. Yeah, they really do. And I'm, I'm assuming they still do. But uh, just real quick on the, on the uh, Guns N' Roses thing. He was gone, but were you aware of L.A. Guns? Were, were they part of, of your scene in, in the sense that you're down at uh, Gazzari's and you're down at the Troubadour and, and, and Guns N' Roses is sort of coming up through the, the, the strip? Was L.A. Guns a thing? Were they competition? Oh, very definitely. Okay. Very, very definitely. Um, you know, and they'd be on the cover of the Los Angeles music magazine called Music Connection. And back in the day, I was hyper aware that there was L.A. Guns, there was Jet Boy, there was Faster Pussycat, and I was sensing that uh, um, not everybody could distinguish that my band, Guns N' Roses, was infinitely superior to everyone as far as I was concerned, and I saw it very competitively. I knew I had to get guns out of L.A., and connected to the English press and on the road in America ahead of the pack. And that very much drove uh, my strategy for breaking the band. It, it worked uh, very, very successfully. So let, let's get over to Tracy Guns, and I will tell listeners, uh, this was supposed to be a Phil Lewis, Tracy Guns, all L.A. Guns special. And then, of course, uh, Tom called and Alice Cooper called. And so I'm going to split Phil and Tracy over two episodes. So next week, you will get Phil Lewis. But here's here's the thing. Tracy was the second interview in the sort of duo or the tandem. Phil was the first. So uh, um, there, there's sort of a part one, part two, if you want, uh, even though they're completely separate interviews. But I, I did reference the Phil interview to to Tracy. So uh, stick around next week and hear that uh, more great L.A. Guns uh, content. But uh, for now, here is the one, uh, the only, 
Tracy Guns. We are speaking with L.A. Gun guitarist Tracy Guns. The new album is The Devil You Know. It is out uh, later this month on uh, Frontiers Records, and I have heard it. It is absolutely, absolutely terrific. It, in fact, it's it's like a punch in your face. I would say it's it's it, you 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 didn't miss you didn't pull uh, pull any shots on this one, huh, Tracy? Yeah, and I was in a great mood. I don't know where it came from. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Listen, it. Well, okay. So let, let me start with that because, and I asked, I asked this to Phil Lewis before. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have been around. Uh, I think it's fair to say that L.A. Guns is a classic band at this point, which is not a not disparaging. It's it just means that you've actually had a long career, which actually is is impressive in this business. It is. Why not just sort of sit back and and make an album every five years? And then just go out there and give the fans a nice, safe 75-minute set of sex action mm. and Ballad of Jane. Why bother? Why Why make... I mean, first of all, it's a vital, vital album, but why bother? Why not just yeah. sit back on your laurels and say, eh, we did our work when we were 25, now we're just going to run yeah. it through. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, and, and probably, you know, you're not that far off. I mean, probably half of our audience would prefer that. You know, they just, you know, want to kind of relive the the glory of the glory we actually never had but um i mean you know what's the point of not doing that and, and then also what's the point of not continuing to uh strive for great music you know uh dedication to the craft <laughs> you know i don't know um yeah i mean it would be easier but boy would that be boring you know for me in particular uh you know i really i you know i love playing the guitar and i love uh getting better you know, day by day and, and, uh, and recording it on tape and putting it out, you know? Yeah. So I want to ask you about that, about the guitar. In fact, uh, you know, there, there is an LA gun sound, you know, the, you know, you, when you hear the devil, you know, and when you hear the missing piece, and when you go back to mm-hmm. cocked and load, but you're always guy who, who tinkers with the guitar and you'd always strive to get better. And I follow you in your socials. You're, you're talking about, what sort of your approach with just your guitar playing when it comes to these new albums? Is it, I have to sort of fit in an LA guns mold or are you sort of pushing everything and moving it forward and exploring new avenues? What sort of your take guitar wise? Well, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, that what keeps it interesting is for, for, for me is, you know, I spend all this time practicing and playing the guitar and, you know, uh, I guess you would call it expanding the vocabulary of your instrument. And um, so what I try to do, in particular with L.A. Guns, I don't do anything. You know, I get my sound that my ears just gravitate towards, you know, which is a kind of too much high end, really ballsy uh, guitar sound, you know, very heavy metal sound. And because that's what, you know, when I was a teenager, um I was really into Randy Rhodes and Motley Crue and, and stuff like that. That's kind of that kind of a sound. But then, you know, every so often I learn new stuff and, and I incorporate it in my style and it becomes second nature. So that's really the fun of it. And it, it's it's easier to sound like L.A. Guns for me than the other stuff I do. You know, the other stuff I do, uh, I want to make a classic rock record. I want to make, uh, you know, a speed metal record. I want to you know, do a, a Wawa sandwich commercial, you know, whatever it is, those are the things where I spend time and, you know, kind of tailor a sound, you know, but for LA guns, um, 
you can almost go to the first record and then all the typical sounding LA Guns records, um, excluding, you know, a couple things that are more classic rock. Uh, that guitar sound really has stayed consistent. And so when I screw with gear, uh, you know, every year and try to, you know, refine things, it's always trying to get that sound in a simpler way, you know, to get from the guitar to the speaker faster with less wires and batteries and cables and things in between. <laughs> so, you know, that's why I spend so much time, you know, tinkering It's just simplifying and getting the same sound with the least amount of, of uh, equipment. Right. Now, listen, I, I am ad- admittedly not a gearhead. I, I'm not, I have no, no, ability to tell you a difference between a this knob and a that knob i mean right right uh, right right but for the fans out here that are gearheads what sort of the gear that you're using on this is there a a sort of a secret sauce uh, machine that you're using that's giving you this sound well well i mean for the i got really lucky on this one you know this album i used uh my friend bobby smith he owns a company called rjs amplifiers and I just plugged either my Chub Tone guitar or my Les Paul directly into that amplifier with a microphone in front of the speaker cabinet. That's it. That's all I did on this album. There's no uh, effects, you know, and and live, I use this, uh, this pedal board thing called a head rush. And that is my complete sound live, but I didn't use it at all um, in the studio on this record. I mean, it's like really out of every album I've ever done, this is the most guitar one guitar one amplifier uh recording it really is so i mean that's what i used you know no, nothing I, nothing secret you know it, that's and that's that's good to hear because you know when you listen back to the early sabbath and the early scorpions and the early you know mm-hmm. everything was recorded like in four days and off they went right. to tour and then we got into the 80s and 90s and it was pro tools and then it was reimagined and then there was layered vocals and there was layered this mm-hmm. and so so the approach on this album, is it more old school where you sort of knocked it out in two weeks or is it one of these where you pro tooled everything until it was perfect and pristine? No, absolutely not. I mean, it's very old school um, and the basic record. I mean, you know, we use pro tools now. I mean, that's, that's the industry standard, you know, everything goes, uh, you know, go through an analog mixing board and the tape recorder in essence is pro tools, you know, so you kind of can look at Pro Tools as just a tape machine. Um, other people use it for other things, but uh, we don't. Um, so, I mean, the, the general process is, you know, you stick microphones in front of all your junk and you play. And uh, when the drums sound great, when you get a great drum track, um, then you listen to the bass and the guitars and you fix those, you know, by overdubbing or editing. Uh, you've been in the studio with me before, so yep. you, you kind of have lived through this process with me. And, um, you know, once, you know, you have a solid basic track that I'll overdub the guitar solos and, you know, fills and stuff like that. And then, um, but not, not everything, but definitely the solos. And then the next step, once all the basic tracks are recorded, then we send Phil to a studio, um, with this guy named Mitch Davis now, uh, and they do all the vocals and lyrics and all that stuff together. And they record it over, what you know we have recorded and that's kind of the luxury now of uh, digital recording is i basically email the whole album to new york phil flies there to the studio and it's all the whole album sitting in email and then he records you know his his vocals over these emailed uh recordings and then uh 
all that stuff gets emailed back to me. <clears throat> and then, uh, then I'll do final overdubs, meaning background vocals, tambourines, uh, uh, little guitar overdubs here and there. And then it goes to Greg Worth, who mixes and masters it. That's the whole process. Isn't it amazing, though? I mean, uh, you know, back in 2013, I did this Kiss tribute for, for a cancer thing, and, and there was mm-hmm. 40 tracks on it, and I didn't see anybody in any studio. I sat here in front of the computer like I am today, and they just sent me the tracks, and then I sent the drum parts there. Yep. It, it's it's amazing. Now, yeah, we, we did mention... It's, it's incredible. Right, and, and by the time that time that we were in that studio, we were doing that uh, Kiss track, Cold Gin, and so... Mm-hmm. I, I want that. That leads me to the next question because, uh, in fact, when we were sitting up there, what, what was it called? Red Bank Studio or Red? Anyway, whatever. Red it was Red Red Zone. With, Red uh, Zone. With De- Dennis Degger. Yeah. Yeah. Back in um, boy, years and years ago, we were doing that Kiss song. We we got into this conversation about Creatures of the Night and how mm-hmm. that was an incredible album and we and, and incredible drum sound and blah. And of course. L.A. Guns used the producer Michael James Jackson to do Hollywood Vampires. Now, for, for me, right. you know, I love Hollywood Vampires, and I know uh, Phil thought uh, when I spoke to him recently that the sound maybe was going in the wrong direction. But first of all, getting Michael James Jackson was that a band decision, a record company decision? Was it because of the stuff with uh, Kiss? And and I'm trying to think, had he done Hurricane at that point, or did Hurricane come after? Um, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm not even sure. About I'm not that. sure. But but what was sort of the, the genesis for for picking him as a producer? And I do want to ask you about two producers today. So w- what did he bring okay. to the band? And and were you hoping to get sort of Creatures of the Night, L.A. Guns version? Or was it just like, nah, he's the hot guy. We just we're just going to use him. Well, uh, OK. Um, where do I start with this? Michael, more than anything, was a creative uh record executive uh you know he obviously a, a producer and had a, a, an amazing understanding of of how engineering works and how you know the flow of electricity works but how we arrived there was we had hired george dracolius and rick rubin <clears throat> and then uh you know somebody in the band uh wanted to fire them so they got fired then we had eddie kramer come in uh, it was fantastic. He actually came up with the little melody in Dirty Love um, before the same person fired him. And then um, then I just put my foot down, you know, and I said, look, I don't give a shit about your opinion anymore. Uh, we just let two of the greatest producers of all time go. So uh, I'm going to seek out Michael James Jackson. And if he's interested, we'll be very lucky. And that was that, you know, and, and my decision was based completely on Creatures of the Night, um, not the overall sound, but the drum sound, you know, and um, I had a conversation with him before he came in, and we hit it off right away, you know, he's just a very, very intelligent um, gentleman, you know, and, um, you know, producer's job back then really was to have an amazing phone book with full of engineers and, and, uh, and you know, equipment rental companies and able to do great deals with studios. And and Michael James Jackson was certainly that guy. Um, And, you know, we had discussions about the weight of the album, you know, if we were going to do big, heavy distorted guitars and um, you know, that was, that was 
uh, not the goal on that album. The album, you know, the goal was to make a very weighty record without big, stupid, distorted guitars at the time. Um, you know, I needed to make, uh, you know, uh, for selfish reasons, I needed to make an album that was more musical and, you know, more clarity and, and things like that. And, and Michael agreed. And, uh, and the band was really in the, into, into making that record as well. It wasn't just me. You know, we wanted a big, more classic rock sounding record at the time. And, uh, you know, no regrets about that. Well, I have one now. I mean, how cool would it have been to have an album with Eddie Kramer stamped on it? I mean, Kiss Alive. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, you're you're in the same pantheon as, as all the Kiss guys and all. Oh, oh yeah. Do you yeah. bemoan that now? Is that is that one that, that sits in the back and eats at your eats at you every so often and go, you son of a bitch. You cost me Eddie Kramer. Holy man. Oh, yeah. 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 And Rick Ru- and Rick Rubin twice, you know, for Cocked and Loaded and Hollywood Vampires. You know, I mean, these are these are things when, you know, you're trying to be diplomatic within a band and people just take advantage for whatever reason. But but yeah, you know, and, and the, the saddest part about that is, you know, firing Eddie Kramer and, and Rick Rubin uh, twice. And I'll keep saying that that was the end of my friendship with both of those people. And that's, that's the saddest part for me because I was friends with those guys before they were ever asked to produce LA guns records, you know? So for me personally, I sacrificed a lot for people that had no appreciation for the life that, you know, I let them into. So, so whatever. Yeah, whatever. Let, let, let's move on. Cause I, I, I have a, a couple of albums. I just want to cover real quick. The other one is, okay. um, I had a nice conversation with uh, Tom Worman uh, the other day, and and, uh-huh. and I know Tom, and of course he worked on Cocked and Loaded. And, yes. you know, when you talk to the Cheap Trick guys, they go, oh, he made us sound so soft and so this, and uh, uh. Mm-hmm. And when you talk to, to D. Snyder, and when you, and, 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 you know, everyone. But at the end of the day, the greatest mm-hmm. Twisted Sister album is, is, uh, the, the Tom Worman one, the, the greatest Motley right. Crue albums are the Tom Worman one. And I, I right. would I would put forth, and you can correct me if you're wrong, but maybe up until the new one here, one of your greatest albums, if not the most recognizable, is Cocked and Loaded, and it's Tom Worman. Sure. So sure. Are, are you on on the camp of, of Nikki Six and Dee Snyder and all that, where you go, oh, Tom Worman, well, or, or do you like what he did? Because, I, I mean, you, how, how do you complain about Cocked and Loaded, honestly? Well, well, I mean, you know, every 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 musician is you know has personal <laughs> likes and dislikes, you know. But you know, the thing that that D and Nikki are forgetting is that the magic of a recording that's a timeless recording. There's a lot of key factors, and a lot of that shit is voodoo. And um, having the name Tom Worman, uh, having his DNA in the same room as your band uh, adds to the chemistry of the band. And, you know, that's an intangible um, quality. So, you know, um, and and I know everybody says that, that our, you know, those records that we all made with Tom record aren't like, you know, the, what's the word, uh, you know, well, they're they're, stunning, stunning production, you know, (laughs) for lack of a better word. No, they're not stunningly produced records. But they are unique records, 
and they are records that have stood the test of time and are the whole genre's favorite records of the Tom Warman records. You know, Bob Rock is an incredible engineer and he knows how to brick wall, you know, uh, an album. So it's louder than God and the mix is insane and all those things. And that's wonderful. And then those Bob Rock records are killer too. But the Tom Warman records, you know, the secret ingredient is obviously Tom Warman. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, and, you know, it's, it's hard to, uh, but but belittle his track record. I mean, it, you know, yeah. stay hungry is the thing, and and then whatever, girls, 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 or or uh, anyway. Well, well here, okay. let, let let me make an example of what I'm talking about. Um, you know, we were talking about Eddie Kramer, you know, earlier, and uh, you know, and Rick Rubin. Okay, uh, Danzig's first record. Right. You know, the first time I heard it, I was like, wow, it sounds like a demo tape, you know, because it didn't have reverb and all this fancy stuff on it. But it's one of the most classic metal records of all time. And one of the reasons is, is because it was a photograph of sound taken at a certain time that really Rick Rubin understood that all it needed to do is be captured. It didn't need to be, you know, messed with, you know, uh, uh, Eddie Kramer with the, those Hendrix records and those Kiss records, and admittedly, you know the the Eddie Kramer Kiss records aren't great production at all. You know Eddie would say that the guys in Kiss would say that, you know, but they're Eddie Kramer records, you know, with Kiss. So that's like a chemistry, you know. So everybody's, you know, we live in a in a in a very fast food microwave environment for the last twenty five years where people expect things to sound the same. They expect food to taste the same, and if it doesn't, it's inferior. And that's a, a, not a correct point of view when it comes to art. You know, art can be rough, it can be smooth, um, it can be out of tune, and there's going to be a large portion of the population that's going to like that sound or that flavor or all those things. So, um, you know, uh, you know, one of the big problems with my particular genre of music that I come from is we have a lot of very macho know-it-alls, including myself, who, you know, we think that, that we know it all and that, you know, our production sucked on the last record and the new one's going to be the greatest of all time. And it's total bullshit. You know, at the end of the day, you write great songs, you play your ass off, someone puts a microphone in front of it and people decide if they like it or not. And that's the end of it. Yeah. Oh, it absolutely is. And and you know a lot of those mistakes or mistakes or uh, that's what adds the charm. I mean, if you take an early Kiss record or even an early Sabbath record and you start talking about uh, pitch and tone and uh, and all that technical, yeah. it's 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 just all over the place. But if you corrected it, it would just strip yeah. it of its integrity, would strip it of its charm, it would strip it of its of its essence. And oh yeah, absolutely. Well, Van Halen's a great example of that. The first please. five. Please. Yeah. yeah, awful, awful. By today's standard, awful. But if you oh, yeah. changed anything on them, you would ruin them. Yeah, and that's and that's was really my approach with this record more than any other L.A. Guns record is just let it rip, and, it, and it's ripping. <laughs> it's ripping. It sounds killer. Oh, it really does. Now, so the other thing that comes up a lot in the media these days is bands using backing tracks for help and and all this and. And that also has sort of sanitized the concert experience. Yes, you pay a hundred mm-hmm. bucks and you go see a show, and it's perfect from end to end. And they didn't make any mm-hmm. s- mistakes. But 
you know, going to shows in the 70s and 80s, hearing a little feedback was like, oh, okay. At least they're real. Yeah. So, and I, as far, listen, you correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I know, LA Guns is the real deal. You're not fucking playing any games. You're, you're right. I mean, you're real. Yeah, I mean, it, it would, it would be impossible for LA Guns to do that because we're still a living organism musically when we play live, meaning that the songs are not played the same way ever. You know, I mean, they have an arrangement and, um, but two guitar players, bass player, drums and backing vocals and we improvise every night every song has improv you know improv in it so i mean we just couldn't do it um uh there was a time uh on cocked and loaded tour where we had uh the malaria background vocals uh, you know on a sampler you know that's what it was called back then on a sampler and when the background vocals would come on we would all walk away from our microphones to let people know that yeah you know, that's not us singing. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's kind of how we've always felt about it is like, Hey, you know, uh, we don't want to do that. We don't ever want to be caught doing that. And, you know, but everybody's different, you know, uh, I mean, some bass players have their whole bass track on, on tape, you know, like, it's like, wow. And then those same bass player will talk shit about other musicians. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that that I'm well aware of. In fact, uh, yeah, let's not let's not name names, but yeah, <laughs> there there are some shows that are about ninety percent tape and ten percent real, and and even yeah, well, yeah, okay, I'm yeah. gonna get off that because I'm not, I, I'm about to name some different names. We're not gonna do that. Um, no, we don't need to do that. <laughs> I mean, but the thing, but the bottom line, you know, at the end of the day, is it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Um, you, you know, everybody's got their way of presenting a show. And some people look at, at, you know, music as the music business and either they do the business or they do the music. You know, one of them, you know, there's never a balance. You know, there's never uh, like the music is so important and then they take care of business in a proper way. Or there's the other way. And I could use Bobby Dahl as an example because he's very vocal about it. Bobby wants to make fucking money. You know what I mean? So whatever the, 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 the best way to do the show is whatever the best songs are, uh, for the nostalgia purpose, uh, to get the point across is, is to make sure it sounds perfect and, you know, give them a show that's, that is 70 minutes and, and, you know, make it worth the audience's money, you know, um, in a popular culture, musical way. And I respect that. I just can't do it. (laughs) I mean, it's like, uh, you know, everybody has a different motive, let's say for, you know, for the show business. And, 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 and listen, I love poison shows and I think they're exactly what they should be. Yes. It's the same 12 songs year after year after year. But I, I, I start thinking going, well, what else could they put in there? And you go, well, that one's not good enough. That one doesn't fit this one. You know, when you hear Kiss or something, you go, oh, come on, put in 100,000 years or take out that and put in Reason to Live. Or... Right, right. But right. with Poison, you're, you're sort of like, no, those, those, that's pretty much the ones you want to hear. Anyway, um, the other thing yeah, I want to ask you. It, yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, Phil Lewis, obviously, you're back together and it works. It's, it's Joe Perry, Steven Tyler. It's Gene and Paul. It's whatever you want to call it. It, it, it yeah. works. Um. You know, right well, it's now, so fucking obvious. 
<laughs> right, right. But but you wanted him from the get go. He was yeah. over in Torme and over in uh, you know before that in Girl, and and he was sort of, mm-hmm. and I said this to him, uh, you know, the other time that he was sort of getting to the point where he was going to be the failed musician, where he was going to have to go be an accountant or a florist or whatever. Mm. What was it about him and and those Girl records and maybe even the Torme records where you said? We got to figure out how to fly him to L.A. because this is the voice for what I'm doing. I mean, or, or, and, right. am I right in stating that? Was he the, the voice? I mean, did you really sort of see it in here and say, yeah, we got to get this guy here? Well, you know, Izzy turned me on to girl and we had both decided that Phil was that that perfect balance somewhere between the Rolling Stones, Rod Stewart, uh, Hanoi Rocks, and Accept. You know what I mean? Like, like he really just is on that fine line between metal and just, you know, heavy British rock, you know? And, <clears throat> you know, that was always my thing. You know, it's like, I, I love Led Zeppelin. I loved Rod Stewart. Um, but my band sounded more like Ozzy meets Motley Crue. Uh, and I really wanted that vocal to be something special, you know, because I always was aware that, you know, no matter what you do musically, that voice is the identifying factor at the end of the day, you know, the guy singing it. And, you know, I was really into uh, Paul Diano and I was really into, you know, uh, Dio and, and all these things, but I didn't feel that like that type of voice was going to be unique enough, you know, because everybody was doing it, you know, and I hired, you know, uh, uh, a Jeff Tate clone. Well, you know, I'm sure the music would have been killer and, and all that stuff, but it wouldn't have been very unique because Jeff Tate was already doing that. Phil's voice is just very unique and his phrasing is unique and he's a snotty motherfucker. And I always loved that about him even before I knew him. And, you know, that's a combination that makes for great rock and roll. And, um, uh, so when the, the other singer, um, got caught, you know, doing heroin and nodding out at our final signing meeting, uh, and he instantly got fired. Um, I asked our British manager, you know, or, and he said, well, who do you want? I go, do you know Phil Lewis? And he goes, I do know Phil Lewis. I go, get him here now. And he was over in two weeks and that was it. It was that fast. And that perfect. So, and, and we'll finish on this because we're, we're at half an hour. But okay. when you're in that period of time where Phil's not there and you're hearing, you know, this singer and that singer and, and, and he and she and they're doing the songs, do, do you sit back and say, hey, music, music? and this is, Or was it always sort of bugging you like, yes, man, yeah, we're doing sex action, but it's not fucking Phil. Like, you know, I know you were mad at each other and all, so on and so but but. Right. Musically, though, when you were playing those songs and doing those shows and making those albums, were, did it just feel like there was a missing piece to, to use well, the, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the with Jizzy, it was different because with Jizzy, we created new music and we played most of that new music. You know, when we when we did the thing, um, I tried to do that with with uh, Chris Van Dahl. And we we did, but you know, but then we had to do the typical LA gun stuff. And then when we did that stuff, it sounded horrible. You know what I mean? Jizzy pulled off Phil pretty well. Um, but there were other times where I was working with people that sang the songs fine, 
but man, you know, nobody's Phil, <laughs> you know, and, and it always was really depressing to me. Like, fuck, I'm playing, you know, Ballad of Jane without Phil singing it. You know, no disrespect to anybody. You know what I mean? Because everybody came to the to my rescue. That's the way I look at it. When I look at all the different people that came in and sang in the band, you know, they were there supporting me as a human being and, and as a friend. You know what I mean? And they all did the best job possible. And and you know, I love every person for doing that. And and uh, you know, being there to support this little guy playing guitar. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I mean. Phil and I, that's the, that's the, the meat and potatoes that go in the stew. And, you know, it's, or, or like we said at the beginning, it's the secret sauce. I mean, it really is. It is. It, it really is. And of course, uh, I'll remind the folks that The Devil You Know is out in March. And of course, uh, do check it out. I've had a chance to hear it. It is spectacular. I mean, and, and you know what? I'm going to add, I'm going to, I'm going to add to this. Uh, you know, and we talked about legacy bands or classic bands. They have made other albums in, later in their career, and maybe with the exception of Judas Priest, because Firepower was pretty kick-ass. Most, oh, most so of the albums, kick-ass. right? I mean, but most of the albums are like, oh, yeah, all right. <laughs> Could you play us uh, Rocky Like a Hurricane? Thank you. Uh, but yeah. your last two no, albums, right? But your last two albums are as good or better than yeah, anything you've done before. And that's yeah, no doubt about it. That's refreshing from the fan perspective that you're just not calling it in. This this is not you're punching a clock and getting some shit out. You're right. No, it's well. It's, no, I mean, you know, uh, we don't have the luxury of burning out. You know, uh, uh, we are we are fading away. And <laughs> you know, we're thirty years in now. You know what I mean? And uh, if things just stay that way, it, it could go another twenty years. And, you know, you got to be great. You know, that that's just the way it is. You know, I mean, every record I've ever done, I've, you know, pushed myself at that point in my life to make sure that the music comes first. You know, I mean, it's embarrassing if, if you if you don't I could you know, you make a throwaway record. What you know, wow, what the, what does that even mean? You know, it's I mean, uh, you know, and the, and the amount of money you get for making records now just isn't worth making a shitty record. <laughs> it has to be great and it comes it comes from that uh, combination and and i honestly i think it comes from your live shows because when you go out there you deliver so so much that Mm. when you're on the road for six months you you hit the studio you must be in such a stride and such a moment and a mood and a mode yeah it's 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 like the, the a machine anyway uh tracy always always a pleasure uh, always a pleasure the devil you know folks pick it up in fact buy it don't stream it it's better to hold it in your hands and stare at the artwork than it it is one of those records yeah yeah better to own it. yes uh there you go hold on i want to say one more thing after but let me just say goodbye uh thank you and and uh, there you go you're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. Very, very big thank you to Tracy Guns. And yes, folks, uh, normally we, we we tap out after three interviews, but we've got a very short one here with Brian Ray. Just, just around 15 minutes, maybe a little bit under. He is, of course, the guitarist for Paul McCartney. And listen, when you have Alice Cooper on and he's out there doing Hollywood Vampires, which is sort of... Uh, in memorandum or in memory, I should say, of of all those bands that passed before, uh, 
you have to sort of pay tribute to the Beatles, and what better way than some guy who was actually playing with a Beatle? And so uh, Brian Ray, by the way, I do I do recommend heading over to brianray.com, brianray.com. You can check out the new um, – What's it called here? A tear, the tears of a clown with a Smokey Robinson, and uh, there you go, Mister Mister Niven. Are you aware of uh, Brian and and Paul McCartney's band? Because when if you're in Paul McCartney's band, it is because you are the creme de la creme. Well, obviously, I mean Paul has you know extraordinary um, standards to maintain. And, uh, you know, being a Beatle, there's no higher standard. Um, and uh, I was intrigued that he had worked with Smokey Robinson, because I have to tell you that, for me, Smokey Robinson is one of the all-time voices of, of R&B and soul. And I loved him back in the day when he first came out. And if you don't know who Smokey Robinson is, for heaven's sake, go out and buy greatest hits of Smokey Robinson. It, his music and his voice was fabulous. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And 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 this song and and it's a collection that is great. It, it just really is these two guys having some fun and putting out this this music. So uh, check that out. Check out BrianRay.com. And uh, you know what? We've said it five times now. It's it's a long episode, so let's get right into our guest. Here is the one, the only. Guitarist for Sir Paul McCartney, Brian Ray. We are speaking with uh, Paul McCartney guitarist Brian Ray. The new single is One Heartbeat with The Tears of a Clown featuring Smokey Robinson also on there. Uh, Brian, an absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you. Hey, man. Thank you so much for having me. How you doing today? Good. Doing good. And it is a, a, an incredible uh, pleasure to talk to you and, and, and just... You know, when you look at some of the people you've been associated with in your history, Etta James, uh, Smokey Robinson, Willie DeVille, uh, Johnny Holiday, Shakira, Paul McCartney, and, and it, the list just goes on and on and on. We'll start with that. Just just, just talk to me about your the, the overall career and, and how blessed you've been because these are not, you know, these are not... Uh, C-list artists here. You, you're, you've worked with the best of the best, and even the better of the best. I mean, it's it's an amazing uh, timeline, an amazing arc of in a career that you've had. Uh, well, thank you so much. I mean, you know, I feel you, man. I feel the same way. It's like I'm so lucky, and I was uh, really happy to to get a call to work with Etta James when I was a kid. I first met her when I was 18 and started being her lead guitar player and her musical director at age 19. And we would drive around and fly around without a band and put together local bands uh, in in each town we'd go to, whether it was driving up to Frisco or Santa Barbara or down to San Diego. We were living in L.A., of course. Um, and, uh, you know, that was such a great way to learn how to be a player among players learn how to be a leader as well and uh very grateful to be trusted by her and i would th say that all things have flowed from that 15-year association uh with etta which went on for another 25 years after that um you know, which has served me really, really well and sort of taught me the ropes and taught me how to be. It, it really has. And, and just what a great experience that might be. So let's, 
Let's get on to the single here. You've got a new single that came out recently. It's called One Heartbeat, and there are two songs on it. The vinyl is out now, and you've got The Tears of a Clown featuring Smokey Robinson. Uh, talk to me about putting out this single. Is this something that you just wanted to do, get one single out, and maybe in six months do another single, or is this sort of one and done? Is this part of a bigger project where there's an album coming out? What's... What's sort of the, the goal here with, with this one, well, in fact, these two songs? Yeah, good question. Well, so um, I'm uh, lucky enough to have a record deal with a great label called Wicked Cool Records. And for those of you who don't know, you got to check them out because they release a lot of great stuff. It's, um, that's little Stephen Van Zant's label, who you might know from either The Sopranos or his 40-some-year association with Bruce Springsteen as his uh, guitar player. Yep. Now, and, and a guy that I would love to get on the show at some point. So if you can make that happen. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I... He's so interesting. No, he, he's great. But yeah, so go, go ahead. T- tell me about the label and, 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 and the single. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, they gave me a opportunity to record a single um, about a year and a half ago. And my first one was called Here For You. And that was my first single for Wicked Cool. And that was a song that I wrote about my two nephews, James and John, who are sitting in the backseat of my car right now as we speak. Say hello. There they are. James is on the cover. Anyway, so um, I wrote that song uh, for the kids. And that was my first single. On the other side of that one was... Uh, my cover of Neil Young's Cinnamon Girl. And I was really happy with how they came out, and the label was super happy with it. So they came back to me and said, okay, we would like to do two singles a year. That means four songs a year. Would you be into that? And I said, I'd love it. And then they said, okay. So I said, what would you like to, you know, me to try next? And they said, well, how about some like more soul, like garage soul kind of vibe? And I said, oh, that sounds like fun. And so I immediately started thinking about, well, what song would fit that description, garage soul? And uh, then I thought about, well, I wrote that song for Smokey 30 years ago called One Heartbeat. So that's out there, except I'd have to totally re reimagine it because that version is... Uh, you know, it's a, it's not garagey. So I did that. I reimagined it and made it kind of more up tempo and added some horns and a double time beat. And then I was thinking while I was recording that song, why don't I record my live version of the song "The Tears of a Clown" that Smokey made famous writing that uh, back in the day? And so we recorded that too. Now, a couple weeks after recording those tracks with two great players in the studio and three great horn players. I thought, Oh man, I'm really happy with this. That sounds really good. What if I called Smokey and asked him to came, come and sing? And that's what I did. And he said, yes. And here we are. Yeah. And, and what a voice. I mean, Holy mackerel, uh, just, just an incredible voice. So uh, since you're going to be doing four songs a year, you know, the first one came out just in January. W- when do we see the next one come out? Well, I don't have a perfect answer for you yet. You'll just have to stay tuned. You know, maybe jump on over to my website, which is just my name.com, brianray.com. And then um, 
also. So I send out newsletters spam free and not very often either. So don't worry. I won't clog up your, your, uh, your yeah, inbox. Your email. And wow. then, um, you know, I'm on social media as Brian Ray guitar all over the place. So you can find me there. And uh, it might be late spring uh, is the next one, I think. I just finished the B-side for the next single. Oh, that's great. So so quickly, let's, let's just quickly get into the career. You've been with Paul McCartney for, what, going on 17 years now, 18 years now? Um, we're, we're, we're deep into our 18th year together, yeah. Wow. So what was that like? Because this is not just some guy calling up and asking for a guitarist. I mean, this is a guy who has not only changed music, but changed the culture of, of, of many countries, you know, the States, Canada, England, you know, if it wasn't for the Beatles, what was that like? And, and, and talk to me about his stamina, because when you go to a Paul McCartney show, you don't get 55 minutes. Thank you very much. See you later. It is a marathon event. Um, forgetting Paul for a second, just, What's that like being on the stage for that long and just delivering the goods night after night? I know. Well, it's a total thrill. It's a little bit of a, it's a, it's a bit of a challenge. I mean, because like, yeah, like you said, it's two forty-five or three hours for every show. And imagine what it's like for him. He's singing at the top of his lungs songs that he hasn't changed the key of since he wrote them. And, uh, and he's playing guitar or piano or bass or mandolin. And he's also being a really gracious host. So imagine what it's like for him. And then it gets a little easier to imagine what it's like for us because, you know, he's been doing it longer than us and he's got the energy. So I must be okay. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And, um, in terms of, of working with him and making new music, what, what is that like, knowing that when you're, you're going to sit down, you're going to compose a few new songs? What, talk to me about that process. of like, what do, okay, let, let me rephrase that. What do you learn from a Paul McCartney? Wow. Well, how about everything? I mean, the guy is so uh, gracious and kind and super funny. Uh and super smart and he wears his you know i don't know his i I hate to say it but there's no better word his legacy like a a loose garment it's not like he's running around with butlers uh in a bubble of his own making like in denial about where he is in the world he's out there in the world he walks to a restaurant you know there's no guys in sunglasses with uh, talking into their sleeves like secret agent dudes. It's really Paul and a couple low-key uh, assistants. And uh, I think that what that does for you is you kind of learn to not take yourself too seriously. Because if Paul treats himself lightly like that, then what business would any of us have in taking ourselves seriously and being all you know have a big ego or something because he wears it pretty pretty loose yeah well and 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 that's great to see now um just before we wrap up you you have worked with french artists in the past milan farmer and uh, johnny holiday and i just had a nice conversation with mick jones a foreigner about his time with johnny holiday the 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 elvis of of france if you want 
Um, just talk to me about the musicality of it all, because playing guitar is playing guitar and music is music. Um, is there any difference for you, though, with the language that, that's, that's sung? Does it, does it change anything on how you approach it? To, I mean, I know it's a sound of sort of a silly question, but what's it like working sort of with a, with a non-English artist and working with those two, which happen to be two of the most revered French artists out there? Yeah, Melaine and Johnny, I'm very, very grateful for the work that I got to do with them over five, six years' time together in France, where I'd switch from Johnny to Melaine and back to Johnny and then back to Melaine. But, um, yeah, it's a great question, actually, so no problem on the question. Um, but it, it's a great question because I really care as a guitar player, what am I supposed to be uh what message am I supposed to be sending with my guitar playing? Because guitar playing for me, it's it's emotional and it's you know it's got to have an intention, just like an actor has to have an intention. I've got to know what am I doing here? Is this a happy solo or is this a little sad? Is he alienated? Is he triumphant? Because those are all very very different kind of ideas. As my role in their band was lead guitar. Those were important questions. So I would simply ask, what is this song about? Because I didn't speak the language well. Yeah, and it, it, it's, it's an interesting thing. Now, of course, uh, folks should head over to brianray.com and also Brian Ray Guitar on Twitter. The new album, the new album, the new single is uh, The Tears of a Clown in One Heartbeat, available now. Uh, just an absolute pleasure to talk to you today, uh, Brian. Hey, man, same here. Thanks so much, and hello to all your listeners, and tell your listeners... If you've got a song, don't give up. Don't stop writing it. Every song is important. Play that solo, crank it up, and have good time, and don't listen to what anyone else says about your work. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Thank you so, so much. Merci à vous. Merci. There you go. Perfect. The Westwood One Podcast Network. <laughs> 